0: Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today we're going to be talking about careers, how to advance careers. So now lots of people that I talk with want to know what it takes to make it to the senior-most levels of an organization. So after you've developed a lovely track record for something, you've developed your expertise in effect, then people begin to ask what it takes to make the next step. And in my experience, most people really have no idea of what to do or what the skills are or what the requirements are. Or even worse sometimes, I'll get a manager who will say to me as a coach, Help this person who's working for me figure out what's holding them back from the next step. And again, those people have no clue where to look, what to think about, or what to do. And that's what I want to focus on today. What are the unwritten rules you need to know to be able to take the next steps in your career and to make it ultimately to the executive level, if that's your desire? So with me today is John Beeson. John is principal of Beeson Consulting, and this is a management consulting firm that specializes in succession planning, executive assessment, coaching, development, and organizational design. Now, John comes to this work Because he's had years in his life in various large companies, including Hallmark Cards and Frito-Lay, a division of PepsiCo. And while he was at Hallmark and Frito, he was responsible for succession planning and executive development, meaning he sat in the discussions all the time about evaluating executives to say, were they ready, were they not ready, and who was going to be a likely candidate to the top ranks. So John's had also the privilege to work with some of the largest and best-regarded companies in the world, so he's got a breadth of experience. Published widely, including the Harvard Business Review, Business Horizons, People and Strategy, Conference Board Review, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Fortune, Forbes, Bloomberg, Business Week. we could go on. And the book that he's recently published is called The Unwritten Rules, the six skills you need to get promoted to the executive level. So John, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Wanda, and uh, thank you for having me with you today.
1: I'm really looking forward to this one, and I really like um, some of the messages that we're going to talk about today. So, I have to start at the top. You know, you've had a very successful career as an executive and a thriving consulting business. Why'd you write the book?
2: Well, as you mentioned in your introduction, I thank you for that. uh, Over almost 40 years now, it takes my breath away to say that, um, I have had the chance to assess executives, and coach executives as a consultant. Also, as you mentioned, I was responsible for succession planning for two companies. And as a result, I have participated in numerous succession planning and executive placement decisions. And in the process, I've become aware of several disconnects that I find really troubling. For all they say about the importance of executive talent, the vast majority of companies that I have worked with do a very poor job of articulating the factors that they use in promoting people to the C-suite level. And I'll use that term today, and by that I mean CEO and other positions with a C in front of them, chief operating officer, C- uh, CFO, and so forth. As a result, there's a lot of mystery, and I think unnecessary mystery, about, what, about why people do and don't get promoted to that level. And that's clearly unhelpful to those talented managers who would like to advance to that level. Okay. So in writing the book, I had two overall objectives. One was to encourage companies to be more th- forthcoming about those promotional factors so that managers would know what skills they need to both develop and display, and at the same time to allow managers to take greater control of their career success.
1: Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. Now, we're going to talk about this in terms of advancing to the C-suite, so the CEO, the CFO, the chief information officer, chief technology officer, whatever it is that you have in your company. But I'm presuming that the skills that you would develop to advance to the C-suite are the same skills you would need to begin to develop even earlier in your career if you want to advance. you agree with that statement?
2: I think there are a lot of parallels. So when we get to, uh, in a few minutes here, the specific, these six skills that I write about in the book, on one hand, those are pertinent to making it to the C-suite level. But there are some concepts here about basically developing skills that are required for success at the next level. So depending on the titling in, in your organization, it could be making the move from manager to director, from director to VP, Uh, Because typically the skills that you master at one level are not necessarily the ones you will have to master to be successful at the next level. And and your trick as a uh, what I call an upwardly aspiring manager or executive is to breed confidence in those people who make promotional decisions that you can succeed at that level. So on one hand, I think the skills are cumulative. Obviously, the ante goes up, if you will, as as you move up the organization. But the notion of getting feedback about how you're perceived, knowing what skills you need to develop and display to people, and to do that in a proactive manner, I think that is consistent almost regardless of level.
1: Okay, fabulous. I love this. I love what you said there, is that to advance to the next level, your job is to breed confidence in the people who are making the decision that you actually can do what's required at the next level. That's just just a lovely way of saying it. Okay, so before we talk about these lovely six skills, you also talk about the misconceptions that people have about what's necessary. Talk to me a bit about our misunderstandings.
2: Right. Going back to what I said before, and I think this is really unfortunate, this, this unnecessary mystery about these, uh, uh, these promotional factors. There are a lot of misconceptions, as you say, but there are three, probably above all, that I find create real barriers to managers who'd like to, go ahead, to get ahead. The okay. first one is the assumption that producing strong results in your current job will necessarily lead to a promotion. Uh, now, now, this is flawed. Because typically producing strong results is what one of my clients calls table stakes. If you think about a poker game, I mean, it, it, yeah. it is the minimum that is required to get into the game. But rarely are strong results in your current job a differentiating factor, i.e., sufficient to get you promoted. Secondly, I hear a lot of managers say, "Hey, this is this is all politics. It, it's all about who you know." Uh, and suggesting that really there's not much that they, as an individual manager, can do to influence the outcome. Having sat in on the kind of conversations that I've been privileged to sit in on, by contrast, I suggest you kind of flip that on its head. Instead of it's all about who you know, I find it's really more about who knows you, and again, that notion of the confidence that you have bred in those decision-makers. The last one, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, is the assumption that a lot of people have that during their annual performance review, their boss will give them the feedback that they need to advance their careers. Again, we'll expand that, but keep in mind that when you get feedback uh, from, during your annual performance review, I mean, if you get any at all, it tends to be focused on the job you're doing at that level. I find it is very rare that people get useful feedback from their boss about what they need to do to advance, again, those skills they need to, de- to develop to succeed at higher levels.
1: I love this one. So uh, I want to take your first point for just a minute, this notion yep. that delivering strong results is just table stakes. It keeps you in the game, but it doesn't differentiate you. So many companies have this um, mantra about a meritocracy, and what that does is just perpetuate this assumption that if I'm delivering strong results today, that is adequate for me to advance to the next level. Do you see the same thing? <clears throat>
2: um, uh, firstly, I would, I would agree with this. It kind of goes back to this mystery around this. And I, I guess I'm not cynical of those companies that say it's a meritocracy. To me, the, the meritocracy is giving everyone the chance to perform the chance to succeed, and having a level playing field when it comes time to make those promotional decisions. So to me, that's the meritocracy, uh, but that is wholly different than the notion that it's all about the results that you produce in your current job at your current level. Right.
1: But that means if we're going to do a true meritocracy, we have to be much more transparent about what it is we're looking for people to be able to do at the next level.
2: The, okay. the first step is, is that. It's, it's the, the being transparent about these factors, and then it is giving people candid and constructive feedback about how they are seen vis-a-vis those factors, and I'm sure we'll right. talk more about that. Right.
1: All right. So what are those factors, then, that make such a difference?
2: If, if I could, I want to highlight quickly two things that I think set up those the six factors that I ultimately spend most of the time writing about in the book. Um And I want to play off of what I said before about this conversation about uh, producing uh, consistent results. I use the term non-negotiables. Typically, there are three non-negotiables. Again, things that are necessary to get your name in, in the game, if you will, as under consideration for a promotion. The first one is that, the consistent track record of results. The second one, importantly, is demonstrating ethics, integrity, and character. The last one, uh, and I use the term of uh, John Cotter, who a lot of people know he's a retired professor of business at the Harvard Business School, it's the drive to lead. It is that desire to be a leader, to step up, not only to assume higher levels of responsibility, but importantly, to step up and make the tough, often unpopular decisions that kind of go with the territory at the executive level. So again, those three are what I call the non-negotiables. Okay. The second thing that I think is useful to talk about is what are what I call deselection factors. Other people over, over the years have talked about derailers. What are the things that take an otherwise high performing manager out of the running? Mm-hmm. And I'll highlight uh, four here. One is weak interpersonal skills, especially in this day and age where motivating and retaining uh, high talent. Uh, professional knowledge workers is so important. Having weak interpersonal skills gets in the way, and that kind of moves into um, uh, leaders who are either insensitive or abrasive. Right. Uh, another uh, of one of these deselection de- de- factors is the perception that you are putting your self-interest above the company good. You know, we should talk about ambition and how to express that, but if people see or have a feeling that you, your desire to get ahead is trumping the, the interests of the company, that uh, reduces your credibility, and that's a problem. Okay. Lastly, having a narrow or parochial perspective on the business and the organization. This is a problem because having that narrowness of view really gets in the way of your ability as a leader to craft strategy, to drive change, and or or to get things done across the organization because you may not be able to anticipate the impact of your decisions on other parts of the organization that you don't know well. So those are, you know, what I'll call some deselection factors.
1: Okay. All right, so three non-negotiables just to to reiterate these. This is the notion that I have a consistent track record of delivering results. That, two, there's ethics, integrity, character. We have to come back and define what that means and how you show that one. Three, there's the drive to lead, which I definitely want to come back and talk about. But that's largely a willingness to step up and make the tough decisions to move things forward, especially when times are hard. And then three, deselection factors. So weak interpersonal skills, putting your self-interest above the company's good, and sort of a narrow parochial perspective on the company. Okay. Yep. All right, so let's talk about this drive to lead next, because mm-hmm. that's a big one, and it's a particularly important one for me as I work with a lot of women. I don't think women express their ambition, their desire to lead in the same way that many men typically express their desire to lead. So what does this really look like, and what's your experience with this?
2: Yep. <clears throat> well, interestingly, and you're good enough to talk about some of the uh, the writing I have done uh, in addition to the book, and I've actually co-authored uh, with one of, uh, one of my female colleagues on this issue of what are the gender implications of the uh, unwritten rules. And firstly, you're absolutely right that the expression of ambition uh, creates some special challenges for women. Um, I don't think they're insurmountable, but I think it's important to know what they are. So as a starting point, uh, for anybody who wants to get ahead, whether um, he or she is, is male or female, I think it's important for managers to understand the attitude that their corporate culture has toward ambition. And mm-hmm. somewhat tongue in cheek, uh, I said that in some companies, uh, ambition is considered a dirty word. You know, we don't talk mm-hmm. about that here. Mm-hmm. But there are other uh, companies where if you're not bucking for a promotion every week, people just don't think you're in the game. Yeah. Uh, so. Coming back specifically to women, there's a lot of research. It it was in Sheryl uh, Sandberg's book, Lean In. It was in the the article that my colleague and I wrote. There's a lot of research that suggests that female executives, unfortunately, have to operate in a relatively narrow band of behavior, that on one hand you can't be too warm because that suggests a passivity, but you also can't be too aggressive at the other extreme. So when I coach women in, in this regard, as well as men, um, I encourage them to think through who they want to express their ambition to. Uh, it, it, typically, it doesn't help anyone, woman or man, kind of running around the organization saying, hey, I want to be promoted tomorrow, You know, I, I want to be the CEO. There, there, there's, there's no gain in that because usually it's a small group. It's your boss and a few other senior executives who can help you get the job you want. In some companies, not all, unfortunately, there, there may be a trusted HR person who is involved in those kind of decisions. So my suggestion, especially to women, but, but also to men, is it's fine to express your desire for advancement to members of that group as long as you avoid anything that suggests that your ambition is getting ahead of you and trumping the good of the organization.
1: Okay. I often say to people, um, first of all, working with women, I find it takes a long time to get them to actually say, you know, yeah, I would like to lead this group, this region, this company even. Mm -hmm. And that they have it, they just aren't used to saying it out loud. And once we get over the hump of saying it out loud, I encourage them to think about where you'd like to be two and three steps from now. And have those kind of conversations so you're showing long-term ambition, and then you can talk about the realistic progress and development from today until there. So you kind of get a laundry list a bit, if you will, of the experiences um, to broaden out so you're not so parochial, as you said earlier, but also the kind of qualities of a leader that you need to be showing that make you credible inside that company.
2: Well, I like that a lot, You know, kind of as as one one coach to another coach. I mean, helping a person envision and then articulate a longer-term goal, and then by definition to get there, there are steps along the way, and those steps uh, involve advancement. And and they involve both uh, advancement up the organization, but in some cases it could be lateral uh, moves that um, develop a breadth of experience, give you the kind of uh, breadth of perspective I was talking about beforehand. So okay. I think that, uh, that's absolutely right, but uh, I think fortunately, um, at least as long as I have been in industry, I'm seeing more women who are stepping up and saying, wow, you know, I'm equally talented, um, I'm frustrated about the poor quality of leadership, and by gosh, I could do a better job, and hopefully that's a trend that will continue.
1: Right. And I also like your qualifier that it can't be that I want to lead at the expense of the greater good of the organization, because I, I do find people have this blind ambition and they don't realize who they're railroading over in the process uh, or the good of the company in the process. All right. Before we take a break, I want to come back to this uh, the second one to talk about ethics, integrity and character. Um, mm-hmm. Especially in the U.S. at the moment, we're having some very interesting questions about the role of character in leadership today. Yep. So when you say it's ethics, integrity, and character, what is it that you think is most important in them?
2: Yeah, <clears throat> I think it has several dimensions, and it's 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 interesting how how people observe the behavior of the leader and make assumptions about the 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 level of, of ethics and integrity. Um, on one hand, uh, and, and when I lead these kind of conversations, and I, I've led you know, many of these uh, promotional decisions myself, a lot of the discussion about ethics and integrity will be, is the person candid? Does he or she tell it like it is? Conversely, has that person ever been known to shade or withhold information for personal gain? That's a a red flag right there. Uh, Does the person, in this case, hold on to information because it helps them, but it might hurt another person? It might uh, hurt another part of the organization. That's where the tilt factor begins to come in in people's minds. And ultimately, I think what we're talking about is credibility. Is this person credible as a strong leader, but also are they credible as the the kind of person I want to put my trust in, uh, trust to not only uh, produce results, but if I'm one of their direct reports, I'm putting uh, my trust in them to help manage my career uh, for a long-term point of view. So those kind of indices, if you will, of lack of trust really erode a, a leader's credibility.
1: Okay. All right. I like the way you said that that it's um, the shading of the truth or withholding of information for the purposes of personal gain. And then we have, again, this sense of willing to put the self-interest above the company good.
2: Okay. And that, and, you know, there, there are other examples. I know we need to take a break, but just think about compensation. You know, where, uh, you know if, if I kind of pad my numbers or my group's numbers at, at a, in a way that would uh, be at the expense of another group. You know, people are very alert to those things.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it certainly goes on, but I find it eventually does catch up with people um, somewhere along the line in their careers. Okay, we are going to take a break. With me today is John Beeson, and John is the principal at Beeson Consulting, having spent years at Hallmark Cards and Frito-Lay doing succession planning and executive development. The book we're talking about is The Unwritten Rules, The Six Skills You Need to Get Promoted to the Executive Level, I'm going to give you again my favorite quote of this segment, which is, your job to get promoted to the next level is to breed confidence in the people who are deciding that you have the skills and capabilities to do what's required at the next level. We've been talking about the three non-negotiable factors and the three deselection factors. And when we're going to come back, we're going to talk about the really six critical factors that make all the difference. We'll be right back.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforaminc.com you are sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence?
2: And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace,
0: work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far
2: less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business.
0: From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: With me today is John Beeson, and John is Principal of Beeson Consulting, having spent many, many years at Hallmark Cards and Frito-Lay doing succession planning and executive development. And today, his consulting firm specializes in executive planning, executive assessment, succession planning I should say coaching development and organizational design widely published in a host of magazines and publications but the book we've been talking about is the unwritten rules the six skills you need to get promoted to the executive level I should also ask you to say you can follow him on Twitter at John R Beeson b e e two es b e e s n o n that's hard to say for some reason okay John. The six mm. skills. We've talked about the three non negotiable factors. We've talked about the three deselection factors. Now, what are these critical six skills that are so essential for success at the executive level?
2: Yeah, well, happy to talk about those. Uh, wanted to tee this up. Um, I, I'll mention that in the process of writing the book, I had a chance to have 20 in depth, off the record uh, interviews with executives at 20 companies, and these 20 executives were vitally involved in their companies in succession planning and executive placement. Uh, What was interesting is these 20 companies were in a variety of uh, industries, but what was noteworthy was how common they were in their responses about these, these skills. And the six factors, as I call them, really relate to five fundamental tasks of executive leadership. And one factor, executive presence, we can talk about if you like, that in my parlance serves as a preview of coming attractions about your ability to succeed at the executive level. So let me briefly define these uh, six, and then again we can uh, talk in greater detail about any of them. Uh, The first one, not surprisingly, is strategic skills. Your ability to generate winning strategies, to establish a sense of direction for your company or your group or your department and then to engage others behind that vision of the future. So uh, strategic skills. Building a strong management team, we all kind of understand that's important, uh, but typically it starts with your ability to identify and attract talent, to surround yourself with the talent that allows you uh, to, to, to play up, if you will, doing things like strategic thinking and leading innovation. Number three, managing implementation. One of the things I've learned and was reinforced by those interviews is that the higher up you go, a lot of things change. What doesn't change is your responsibility to get the wash out the door. So it's important to show that ability to ensure predictable implementation of priorities and initiatives, but to put in place the processes that allow you to do that so you don't get sucked down to too low a level of detail. Uh, Number four, creating the capacity for innovation and change. In this day and age, it's fairly clear that what is successful today only has a a short shelf life, if you will, that what you need to be able to do is engage others to build on the status quo, to introduce innovation, and manage change. Working across organizational boundaries, it's what I call lateral management, Um, especially as so many uh, organizations have gone to matrix structures your ability to work across boundaries, to work with and through other people to get things done is critical. And then we talked we, we talk more about executive presence, but it's that ability to quickly establish your credibility as a leader and going back to what we said before, to breed confidence that you can maintain your balance, your poise when things get tough and you, know, you need to step up and make difficult, perhaps uh, unpopular decisions. So those are are the six fundamental skills that I describe in the book.
1: Okay. I love those. Let me just repeat those, and then I want to go back and spend some time on a few of them. So the strategic skills, that ability to set a sense of direction, a winning strategy, and engage other people in getting that done – Two is the ability to build a management team, which means it's about identifying and attracting talent and not just talent that looks like you, presumably talent Mm -hmm. with some different set of skills and capabilities. So you leverage what you have, but you're also covering what you don't have. Three is manage implementation. I love your phrase. Get You still have to get the wash out the door, but it's not that you have to do the washing and carry it out the door. Rather, it's that you make sure you know how to get the processes in place to ensure it gets done. Four is the innovation and change, and in other engaging other people, helping them move it along, whether it's building on the status quo or an innovation or a change process. It's about getting other people excited about that. I think that's a fair summary. And then five is the lateral management, working across boundaries, whether those are geographical or business unit or personality, presumably. And then six is executive presence, which you define as quickly establishing your credibility and keeping your poise in balance when times are tough. Yep. Okay. Great set of six. Um, Let's talk for a minute about strategic skills because I get this question all the time. People who are in the mid ranks or the upper mid ranks of an organization who are not necessarily responsible for the big strategy, who don't see, and who are really responsible for implementation, and who don't see how they can, quote, be strategic or show Mm -hmm. their strategic thinking capability. In fact, it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine. Um, so, what's your view on how people show strategic capability?
2: Yep. <clears throat> well, firstly, it's a valid point depending on the level of the organization and also the, the function that you're in. You know, kind of, kind of feeding this back to you, there are some jobs where the priority is on implementation. Or the company has recently done a strategic plan or whatever, and they want you to to lead uh, implementation. I think some years ago, uh, my friend when I was at Hallmark, who who ran the call center for sales. I mean, that was all about about implementation. That said, and and again, we'll talk about some of the uh, dilemmas, if you will, in all this. If you want to move up, you're going to have to, one way or the other, find a way to demonstrate what I call strategic gears your ability to think strategically, uh, to, to create that, uh, that sense of priorities and directions. So, and, uh, so you need to look for opportunities to do that in your current role. So in your case, if you're talking about a middle-level manager who's in an execution-oriented uh, job and your boss says, you know, I think we need a new strategy for X, finance, IT, HR, put your hand up. Uh, There are those kinds of opportunities to play a leadership role in crafting, even though it's not not corporate strategy by definition, but you're establishing a set of priorities to move the, the function forward in line with the corporate strategy. So you have that opportunity to show the ability to say, I understand where my corporation is going, and I'm showing that ability to interpret what the implications are for whatever my functional area is. Those are the kind of things that begin to make people say, wow, you know, this person is not only a good implementer, but it seems to me that they could set a sense of direction if they were at a higher level.
1: Okay. All right. I believe that every person in every organization can be strategic. If we stop defining strategic as setting the grand vision or the corporate priorities, but once those corporate priorities identified, you have a responsibility if you work in that organization to define your own priorities where you spend the bulk of your time and effort in a way that moves the organization forward consistent with that direction or strategy or whatever has been articulated and showing that sense of understanding of what's really matters and what's really urgent and where do I really put my effort seems to me to be a way of showing strategic thinking, strategic skills. Do you agree or disagree?
2: Um, Partly agree and and partly disagree. And and I'll tell you why. Um, One of the questions, whenever you articulate skills like this, is is the, the fundamental question, to what extent is that particular skill something that people can develop versus something that is inherent in, in some way? Um, and I would agree that there are elements of strategic thinking that a person can develop, um, and especially if I use the, the vantage point that I typically work at at the C-suite level, You know, to 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 craft strategy at that level, you've got to have some abstract and conceptual thinking skills that are that are not present in the overall population. So, to your point, um, at a middle level of of the company, uh, strategy may be about establishing priorities. It may be inferring the functional implications of corporate strategy. It may be developing a vision and then using your communication skills to get people excited behind that. Absolutely. Uh, so at that level, those kind of strategic skills are pertinent and, and they're very helpful. Now, will they carry you ac- across the line, if you will, to the C-suite level, where you've got to be looking out in the industry, you've got to be seeing trends, anticipating, anticipating trends, connecting the dots in a way that positions your company for success long term? Probably not, but, but uh, they they can certainly carry you a long way in your career.
1: Right. right. Okay, so fair enough. We have to add, as we're moving into the higher ranks in the organization, this ability to see the trends, to connect the dots, to move the industry forward, to speak to customers about where the industry is going. There's a lot of those kind of skills that are required. Yep. Okay, let's talk for a minute about this whole thing about um, managing implementation,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because Yes, the results matter, and you've already said it's a non-negotiable, that I have a consistent track record, and I see a lot of people get hung up on making sure it happens, which means they get in the weeds and often get a little bit micromanagement for the best of intention to get in the weeds. So, what's your advice here, your wisdom here on how you make sure things are implemented? Yes, but you don't get too far down into the details.
2: Yep. I think the starting point is to understand how managing implementation in a large organization is fundamentally different than managing implementation in a smaller organization. And, and what confounds, quite, quite honestly, a lot of managers is at the middle level of, of their career. You know, they may have a group of 10, 15, 20 people. And they get re- rewarded royally for implementing. Uh, and the, the scope of their Organization. Their operation is such that they can touch it, they can feel it. Everything is coming uh, through them. If you think five years down the pike to being a, 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 a VP or an SVP, where you may have a thousand, you may have a, you have five thousand people in your organization. Obviously, something has to change. You can't touch everything. You can't follow up on everything. So, in, in the book, I write about putting in place what I call an infrastructure. Of implementation because again the wash still has to get out the door but what what are the processes you put in place and I, I think to your point it starts with the priorities making sure that everybody in that organization however big understands the priorities it is delegating meaningfully to your people but monitoring but but delegating with monitoring follow-up kind of the eye hooks if you will of implementation it's having reviews It's taking a look at your uh, scorecards, your metrics, all those things that reinforce people's attention to that. Um, I see some people uh, will put in place either uh, full-time chiefs of staff or kind of a de facto chief of staff who's following up on their behalf. Those are the kind of techniques that I find become more and more important to allow the, the executive in this case to make sure that the wash is getting out the door but to free up bandwidth for the strategic thinking, the meeting with customers, the focus on creativity, and so forth.
1: I like this, that you set up processes. So we've got an infrastructure, both by delegating, but not delegating and disappear. It's delegating and monitoring. Um, And that I'm setting up processes to review. I remember talking to a senior executive who was describing somebody who worked for him who was just brilliant at managing a host of different countries. And he Mm -hmm. said, this guy has his seven metrics. And if there's anything that goes wrong in any one of those countries, on those seven metrics, he's on the plane to the country and into the details reviewing what the issue is. But so long as those seven metrics keep moving along, he thinks the business can't be too far off the rails. And so he can give a lot of freedom. And what you're talking about is something similar.
2: Uh, it, it's one element, you know, one of the, uh, the mm-hmm. techniques, one of the, the sub-processes, if you will, and one of the nice things about those metrics, or some kind used to talk about scorecards, dashboards, or whatever, not only is it a good technique for the leader, <clears throat> but <clears throat> it's a great way to focus the attention of the organization, mm-hmm. especially when they know on Thursday, Wanda is going to be having a, <clears throat> an operating review, and you're going to be looking at performance against that metric, and you're going to be looking at updates on the five major initiatives in your area. It gets gets people's attention, and proactively, they're all thinking about the same kind of implementation.
1: Okay. All right. Great. So, one of those metrics, one of the tactics you can use is a scorecard of metrics, and another. There are several others, but one of the others you just mentioned is this notion of an operating review. Where are we on the five initiatives? What's the status? And everybody's kind of focused on an update and a report. Okay. Just before we take a break, let's talk for a minute about innovation and change. Um, what's your advice on how people think about demonstrating their capability to do innovation and change?
2: As a starting point, I will share a distinction one of my colleagues early in my career made for me that I found to be immensely helpful. Because if you think about creativity and innovation, we kind of think of them as the same thing. And what Paul told me is that Creativity is the ability of the individual to generate the new, the novel idea. Innovation, by contrast, is is actually a leadership art—that ability to foster new thinking, to support new thinking within an organizational framework. So, you know, it it starts with the notion that yes, we want to execute. Um, You know, we want to make sure the train doesn't go off the rails. But the way we're doing it today is unlikely to be adequate to to the way we're going to need to be doing things in two years' time. So it starts with scanning. It starts with looking typically not only within the company, but outside the company. What are innovations be they technological, be they process. You know, we, we had Six Sigma some some years ago, whatever. What are those new ways of doing things that can be brought into our organization? Mm-hmm. The, the next thing I think for a leader is to understand what it takes to to lead innovation and change. <clears throat> and there's kind of a yin and a yang. On one hand, you need to be highly supportive. You need to let people know that when you experiment, when you innovate, there's a danger of mistakes and a failure, and you're going to support that, because obviously in companies where there's no tolerance for for failure, people pull back their horns, if you will, and are very conservative. Mm -hmm. By the same token, there are times you as a leader, and you'll love this, um, where where you have to push your organization out of its comfort zone, Mm -hmm. where people might be saying, oh my gosh, we don't have all the I's dotted, we don't have the t's crossed." And you basically say, it is important for us to achieve X, to put in place Y within the next six months if we're going to implement our strategy and get out of, uh, ahead of the organization. So right. it's, it's that wonderful leadership ability of knowing when to be supportive and, and when to push.
1: Right. Yeah, the the push and the pull, I guess, is another way of saying it. I really like this notion of the yin and the yang. When do I give a nudge and a bit of a kick, and when do I kind of hold and nurture and make it work, possibly? Okay, John, we're going to have to take a break again, most unfortunately, because we can keep talking about each of these six factors. So to repeat again, John Beeson is my guest today, principal of Beeson Consulting, specializing in succession planning, executive assessment, coaching, development, and organizational design. And the book that we've been talking about is The Unwritten Rules, The Six Skills You Need to Get to the Executive Level. Now in the last segment we talked about the three non-negotiables and the three deselection factors and this time we have been talking about the six factors that make all the difference in your selection at the C-suite level. So strategic skills, a sense of direction, a winning strategy that engages others, to the ability, ability to build a management team where you are attracting talent from across different capabilities and skills. Um, Three, the management of implementation, which is making sure you get the wash out the door, you have processes in place to make sure it happens so that you don't get sucked down all the way into the micro details. Four is this ability to engage others in innovation and change, as we've just been saying, the yin and yang, sometimes a push and sometimes a gentle support. Five is the ability to manage laterally across boundaries within the organization, and six is executive presence, The ability to quickly establish your credibility to keep your voice and balance when times are tough. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back in our last segment, we're going to talk about the career movements and transitions. So we'll be right back. (music) Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
0: If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc.,
1: The book that we've been talking about is The Unwritten Rules, the six skills you need to get promoted to the executive level. I should also mention that you can follow John on Twitter at John R. Beeson. And Beeson is spelled with two E's in the middle. I won't try to say that again. All right, John, We in the very beginning, we were talking about the importance of feedback, and you made the comment that the performance review time and awful in in the mid-year review time is the time in which you're going to get feedback about your performance for the job you're in. It's rare that you're going to get that feedback that lets you know how you are perceived at the next level. and whether. Remember, I come back to what we said at the very beginning, that to advance, your job is about breeding confidence in people who are going to decide that you have the skills and capability for the next level. So not related to so I'm not interested in immediate performance feedback. I'm interested in how do I get feedback on how I'm perceived, particularly of those skills at the higher level. What's your advice there?
2: <clears throat> well, firstly, um, and I, I, I use the term the feedback that really counts. <clears throat> And unfortunately, this feedback that really counts, again, in, in terms of knowing how you're perceived, as you said, against these core selection factors, is something that so many executives, even CEOs, are really uncomfortable about sharing. And the problem is you may approach the person and say, look, I really want to get promoted. I'd like to be at the C-suite some, uh, someday. How am I doing? And you can either get the comment, you're, you're doing fine, nothing to worry about. Or you can get what I call highly coded comments like, well, you know, you're, you're so good, Wanda, you did this. But if you could work on your communication skills, neither of those tend to be helpful to someone uh, because what you really want to know is how you are perceived uh, at this present time and how you need to change those perceptions vis-a-vis those various skills. So bottom line, my suggestion is you start off by thinking through, who do I want to ask, and how do I want to ask to be most successful in getting this feedback? So the who to ask is maybe more straightforward. You should start with your boss, but ideally you would like to talk to as many senior people who you've worked with who know your work as you can. So it's not just your boss's uh, point of view, You're, you're hearing from others Uh, because you'll find that there may be some subtle differences, so it's very useful to to have that conversation. The how to ask is, is critical, and you need to go into these conversations understanding that people tend to be really uncomfortable giving this feedback for a number of reasons we can talk about, and bottom line, if in the conversation you show signs of defensiveness, well, how could you say that? Well, wait a minute, you promoted Ed or whatever. You tend to shut down... The, the feedback that they find very difficult to begin with. So my suggestion is be, be objective, project a sincere desire for feedback that's going to help you learn and grow and contribute to the company. And then at the end of a productive feedback session, there's one question that i suggest, uh, and that is to simply say, as you sum up, thank you very much for the time. As you think about it, what are the one or two things above all others That would most build confidence in my ability to succeed at higher levels in the company? Mm Because that question, if you've had a good uh, discussion, tends to separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of the different pieces of feedback you might get.
1: Okay. I love that one. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for the time. I don't care whether you love the conversation or hate it. That's an important thing to say. And then two, what's the one or two things above all else that would most build your confidence in my ability to succeed at the next level? Yep. Great. Yeah, I find when people are asking for this kind of feedback, there is a bit of a tee up in the conversation where you're showing the sincerity um, awareness that maybe you're not the best in the world at one of these six factors, and that you really would like to improve or grow your capability, or you know, be seen as more competent in any of these factors, and that then we you know we talk, and then along the way somebody's gauging how defensive you are and not defensive, and then the the, the final question. Which just gets to the nub of what really is going on is often the useful, and you know, having that question, like you just articulated, makes all the difference in the world. Excellent job. Okay, in the few minutes we have left, let me shift gears to you and talk about planning careers. So it's a question I get all the time. Yep. And I find that often careers are not as planned as people might think on the outset. So what's your experience and what's your advice about how people should go about planning the steps in their career?
2: Yep. Well, firstly, I would agree. Um, and one of the things that's been great fun in my career is that I've had a chance to talk to a number of senior executives and ask them, hey, tell me about your career. You know, how does it lay out? How did you get where you, where you are? What is interesting is very few of them have what we might call a step by step career plan, you know, from the age of 28 to uh, to 65 or whatever, um, and they will talk about opportunities they came there, that came their way somewhat serendipitously that provided great development. I would say, and, and this is, and this is what uh, what I, I find useful when I talk to people is think about what I'll call your career vector. Don't think about your next job, your next two jobs, or you know, uh, you know, chess or checkers or whatever. What do, you, what do you see yourself as being? Do you see yourself as being a general manager who will lead a big uh, operating group in the company? Do you see yourself as becoming a CFO? You know, uh, do, you, do you see yourself as being the uh, chief marketing officer? Because if you get to that level, I mean, and if you decide you want to throw your hat in the ring to be a CEO, you can do that. But if you've got that sense of a vector, then it's easier to think about what are the job experiences along the way that will help me build skills, build a breadth of perspective. So, for example, just take GM. And, and different companies have general managers. It could be for a $5 million business, but it could be for a you know, $500 million business. But typically, you need to know the different functions and activities of a business, You need to know how to manage a P&L, not just from a financial point of view, but understanding the interplay, kind of the cause and effect of a P&L. Depending on your company, uh, you may well want to get international experience, so you've got that global perspective. So that helps you think through the kind of jobs you might want to uh, pursue and also whether or not you want to uh, pursue something where somebody says, hey, Wanda, you're terrific. How would you like to be the general manager of Venezuela? It it allows you to proactively think if it it fits into that kind of uh, uh, career progression. Okay.
1: All right. We've got one minute, John. There's a lot written currently about the younger generation and their willingness to move, 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 move. What's your view about moving rapidly in a career and jumping ship? In one minute, of course. (laughs)
2: Let me, if I could, address the piece about jumping ship. Um, The starting point, and I'll try to do this really quickly, We have all seen people who leave for another organization and become hugely successful. It really becomes a a pivot point for them. However, consider this with your eyes wide open. Uh, It's a figure that is not routinely published uh, by the headhunters for obvious reasons. But all the data that I've seen is after two years at the senior executive level, upper middle level, the failure rate is about 50%, Mm -hmm. meaning one out of two people don't make it. So understand that there is risk in, in doing that. Um, however, I, I do think that there are some litmus tests. If you have been passed over for a promotion multiple times and you haven't received useful feedback about why and the skills you need to develop, and if you have made a concerted effort to address feedback that you've received, the, the uh, feedback that counts kinds of things, and you haven't been successful in changing people's perceptions within your company, Um, it's probably worth your while to think about uh, taking a look at an option at, at another company.
1: Fabulous. John, we could keep talking forever. I hate to end it because this is a really important part here. With me today is John Beeson. The book we've been talking about is The Unwritten Rules, The Six Skills You Need to Get Promoted to the Executive Level. And I think the one thing I want to leave on parting here is this, how do you get the feedback that really counts, an openness without defensiveness, and one final question. Thank you for your time. What's the one or two most important things that will build confidence in your ability for me to succeed at the next level. John, thank you for being with us today.
2: It's been a terrific pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: All right. And next week, we'll be talking with Stuart Diamond, and we're going to be talking about negotiations, how to get more of what you really want. Join us then.
0: Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.